You're listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Indeed, the peace of Christ to you. Well, welcome to worship at Roswell Presbyterian Church. It is great to see you in worship today. We're so glad you're here. Today we kick off a new sermon series looking at the life of Moses, looking for certain promises in uncertain times. Like many of you, I was shocked and dismayed at the violent and undemocratic events at the Capitol this past week. And I want you to know that the church and the people of God have a calling to stand against all violence, all racism, all white supremacy. And I know that many of us are feeling a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, and I want to remind you that we, your pastors, your staff here, are here for you. If you want to talk, if you want to pray, if you need support, if you want a listening ear, reach out to us. We want to minister to one another during these times, because it's true. We do live in a time of great conflagration. The fires of the pandemic rage seemingly all around us. Political brush fires threaten our community. There are so many things we worry about that bring us anxiety. We live in uncertain times. So in the midst of that uncertainty, what do we have that we can cling to, that we can lean on in the midst of these fires that rage around us? I believe we need to hold fast to the certain promises of God. I can think of few other people in the Bible who demonstrate what that looks like than Moses and the life of Moses. Let us look this morning at Exodus chapter 2 at the events surrounding one of the most important people in the Old Testament. Let us look at Exodus 2 verses 1 through 10. Let us listen for the words of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. He must have been very well behaved. (laughs) When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for this great passage from Holy Scripture. We ask 
that in the next few moments you might be our teacher. Lord, we do live in uncertain times, and we bring so much baggage into this space, into our hearts during this worship service. And so I pray that by your Spirit you might change and transform that baggage to something and in a way that only you can. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I am only here because somebody loved me. The doctors told my mom she would never be able to have children. Yet one day out of nowhere, she found herself pregnant. So then on October 10th, 1978 in Yakima, Washington, in the operating room, there were complications. The umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck. The doctors hurried into emergency mode. They acted quickly and they saved my young life. My mom and dad, they breathed a sigh of relief. For months, my parents fed and bathed me. They clothed me. They gave me medicine when I was sick, and they demonstrated remarkable patience when I screamed and cried late into the night. I am only here because somebody loved me. Long before I could ever take care of myself or help myself. I'm only here because somebody loved me, and I bet you're here because somebody loved you too. Whether it was driving you home from the hospital, giving you a bottle, burping you when you had the hiccups, changing your diaper, you were only here because somebody loved you. It's true. Whether we admit it or not, whether we remember it or not, someone loved us long before we could ever love them. In a very concrete way, people helped us long before we could help ourselves. Now, it's easy to forget that fact. We often want to take all the credit for our status and progress through life. I've worked so hard to get here. I relied on nobody but my own wit, ingenuity, and hard work. I'm a self-made man. Sorry. <laughs> There's no one who's truly self-made. Did you change your own diapers? I doubt it. Did you fix that bottle? Did you comfort yourself at 3 a.m. when you couldn't stop crying? Nope. None of us would be here unless somebody loved us. And it was no different for the greatest man in the Old Testament, and that man is Moses. Moses was a complicated figure. He was a son of adoption, adopted into a culture and a family not his own. He was a son of royalty, but also a murderer and a shepherd, a prophet who would confront the great Pharaoh. He was a leader and a lawgiver. Now, for hundreds of years, the stories of Moses' early years were passed on orally from generation to generation. Remember, very few people could read or write. Grandfathers would gr gather their grandchildren around the campfire and say, let me tell you a story. Tell them about the great man, Moses. Mothers would gather their children around the, the breakfast table, I guess. <laughs> let me tell you about Moses. 
Aunts and uncles would tell their nieces and nephews, let me tell you a little story about the baby Moses. He was a common person just like you, but God used him to change the world. You see, for for years, Moses got most of the headlines. But rest assured, Moses was only the man he was because people helped him long before he could help himself. In fact, there are three sets of women in our story who helped Moses before he could help himself. The first set of women, Shipra and Pua. Pua, no, that's not a pickup artist. They were Egyptian midwives. You see in the passage that precedes the passage I just read this morning, the Pharaoh in Egypt recognizes that the Israelites are becoming too numerous. He recognizes a threat. The Pharaoh tells the Egyptian midwives in Exodus 1.16, and I quote, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. This brutal king, this pharaoh of Egypt, commands the midwives to kill all the Hebrew boys. This means that the entire people of Israel could be wiped out in a generation as each of these boys were killed. These Hebrew girls would have to grow up and they would marry Egyptian men, take part in their culture. And the Hebrew culture would be wiped out in a generation. But that's not the end of the story. Moses, or, excuse me, Pharaoh did not get his way. In verse 17 it reads, But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the boys live. You see, these women feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh. See, the the promise of God that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continues on. It continues as a possibility because these women courageously disobey the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They act on their own to save these babies. I've heard it said that well-behaved women seldom make history. It's interesting to note, we don't know for sure who this Pharaoh is. But thousands of years later, billions of people around the world, down throughout time, know the names of these midwives, Shipra and Pua. We have two women who practice the first act of civil disobedience in the Bible. They fear God more than they fear the command of Pharaoh. And they are willing to to put their lives on the line to save these little boys. They'd rather disobey disobey Pharaoh than participate in the killing of the innocent. They do this really in two ways. First, they disobey Pharaoh by letting the baby boys be born. And second, they lie to Pharaoh to cover up their act. In verse 19, the midwives lie to Pharaoh and give an excuse of why all the Hebrew babies are being born. They say, because The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And with this lie, the midwives raise an important question. Is it ever okay to tell a lie? During moral formation, we instruct children never to tell a lie. And we're right. 
But as you grow older, you begin to experience the complexities of life. You begin to see that telling the truth is complicated. One of the most significant theologians of the 20th century was the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer uniquely had to wrestle with what it meant to tell the truth. He lived in Nazi Germany when oftentimes evil was called good and good was called evil. And he asked, what does it mean to tell the truth? He was a brilliant man. By the time he was 25, he had published two PhD theses. He was known as a genius in the country, but he was also not just concerned with academic theology. He was concerned with the lives of everyday people. He became a spy for the resistance, participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Eventually he was discovered, arrested, and as a personal prisoner of Hitler's was executed brutally several days before the end of the war. But before he died, Bonhoeffer in prison wrote quite a bit. It's collected in two books. One book is called Letters and Papers from Prison and another book called Ethics. And in his book Ethics, he writes an essay with this question at the center of it. What does it mean to tell the truth? And I couldn't help think about it when I read our passage this morning. In it, Bonhoeffer gives the example of a child who is asked in front of the class by a teacher if his father often comes home drunk. The teacher, you see, wants to embarrass the child in front of his classmates. And in fact, the father often does come home drunk. But the student denies that fact and says no. According to Bonhoeffer, the child gives a good answer because the question should never have been asked in a public classroom. Bonhoeffer explains, it's none of the class's business. The teacher isn't trying to help, but only to embarrass the student. Bonhoeffer says, and I quote, the child's answer can indeed be called a lie. Yet this lie contains more truth. That is to say, it is more in accordance with reality than would have been the case if the child had betrayed his father's weakness in front of the class. According to the measure of his knowledge, the child acted correctly. The blame for the lie falls back entirely upon the teacher. In effect, Bonhoeffer draws on the civil disobedience tradition. Began with Shipra and Pua running its way through Thomas Aquinas, down through Dorothy Day, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., even Nelson Mandela. And that tradition says, an unjust law is no law at all. The truth is only required to be told to the person who is rightly entitled to the truth. And the Pharaoh was not entitled to the truth because he was intent on killing these babies. And therefore, these midwives did what was right. The midwives served a higher truth than Pharaoh. Friends, the greatest man in the Old Testament is only here because someone loved him when he couldn't help himself. The second group of women are Moses' mom, Jochebed, and Moses' sister, traditionally known as Miriam. After Pharaoh commands the midwives to kill all the Hebrew boys and finds his command disobeyed, he tells all of the Egyptians to throw all of the Hebrew boys into the Nile. There's actually extra biblical evidence that we know this was a practice that actually happened in Egypt. 
It's almost too brutal to conceive. But Jochebed, Moses' mother, has a son, and she hides him for three months. But when he's too big to hide, they make a basket for him to float in. They put him in the river. It's interesting that the same Hebrew word here for basket is tebat. It's the same word that's used for Noah's ark. It's as if the writer is saying, just as God saved Noah, just as God saved Noah, now God will save Moses, God will also save the Hebrew people. And Moses' sister stands on the bank of the river and she wants to see what will happen. I find this to be such a moving scene. This mother and sister doing what no parent and sibling wants to do, but what they're doing for the good of their own child. You see, what we have here are the initial steps of the first adoption. Moses' family gives him up, not because they don't love him, but because they love him so much. They want to offer him a life that he couldn't, they couldn't offer him otherwise. They give him up out of their great love for him. My brother and sister were both adopted by my family. And I've worked with many people over the years who have been adopted. And this is one of the hard truths that people have to often work really hard to realize. You were given up for adoption, not out of hate, but out of love. Somebody loved you so much, they wanted something better for you. Someone cared enough about you, they wanted to ha- you to have a life that they couldn't give you. They love you not too little, but so much. I've been blessed to have a front row seat at a number of moments when folks who have been adopted have reconnected with their biological parents. And one of the things that the biological parents try to express is how much they loved their child in giving them up for adoption. I gave you up because I loved you so much. And that's exactly what Moses' mother and sister are doing. They helped him when he couldn't help himself out of their great love for him. The third set of women are Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants. In every good adoption, there is a lot of love. There's the love of the gift giver and there is the love of the gift receiver. And Pharaoh's daughter has courageous compassion to discover this child and to take him into her home as her own. Even though her father has commanded for all these boys to be killed, she rescues him and she names him Moses, she says, because I drew him out of the water. Moses is given such a name so he can never forget where he came from. Yes, you were adopted, but never forget where you came from. There is an irony at the center of the story. The very thing that Pharaoh meant to bring death, the Nile River, actually brings life. It brings salvation to all the Israelites. And when Moses is saved, now Pharaoh's daughter needs help taking care of the child. And this is the second irony. Moses' mom wants nothing more than to be able to take care of her son. And now she can, and she gets paid for it. Who's in for that? 
Over the next 40 years, Moses will receive the most excellent education and training in the world. He has been adopted into the royal family of Egypt. See, Moses has received help when he couldn't even help himself. This is one of the great certainties of life. None of us got here on our own. I drew him out of the the water, Moses means. Someone helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. This is a biological truth, but it is also a theological one. Just as Moses' name means, I drew him out of the water. So each of you who have experienced the waters of baptism have been drawn out of the water by God. You see, friends, many of the stories in Moses' life prefigure and foreshadow what will happen in Jesus' life. They point to a certainty that we can hold on to in uncertain times. In Jesus Christ, God has helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. It's an objective fact. Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Christ loved us before we could ever reach out and love him. 2,000 years ago, God came in the flesh as a baby and grew up to offer his life for the life of the world. And that includes you and it includes me. He's drawn us out of the water. Jesus has helped us before we could ever help ourselves. And so in our uncertain times, let us let this be a certainty that we can hold on to, that God has loved us in Jesus Christ long before we ever loved him. God has helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you have helped us long before we could ever help ourselves. We pray that we might trust and hold on to that certainty in these uncertain times, that it might keep and hold us steadfast in the life that brings so much tumultuousness and certainty. We have you to hold on to because you first held on to us. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.